last week, Pastor Steve brought us through chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. It was a great message if you listened to it. Um, uh, if you didn't, you should. We listened to it, a couple of us on our way back up from Ensenada last weekend. But it was this word that God had already delivered to Eli once through a prophet, and then he heard it again through young Samuel, who was just beginning to listen to the voice of God. Um, Eli knew that that word was true, and um, we, we talked a little bit about uh, the importance of waiting on the Lord, listening to his voice, ministering to the Lord, and how he meets us in that place. But today's passage, we're going to find that word coming to pass. First uh, Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 22 is where we're going this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll do that. Father, as we, as we open your word today, God, as we um, receive what you would have for us, we're asking that you would speak. We're praying that you would give us ears to hear. Wherever we're at this morning, God, that this would be a place and a time of receiving the word that you have for us, God, that we would not be content to remain as we were, Lord, when we came in this morning, but that, God, we would desire to leave as you would have us to be. So please do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's message, if you've got the outline, it's titled, When God's People Won't. These verses, they highlight for us what it looks like when we as Christians, when God's people refuse to submit to him, to learn, to walk in his word, when God's people, again, simply won't. The real and painful consequences that happen when that is our, our posture. But also how we can avoid that cycle of being the kind of people that are, that are always resisting God, that are missing what he's trying to tell us and teach us. How we can grow despite our missteps and faithlessness. Failure is something that we all experience. We will experience it. We do experience it. And at times, it's a result of our sin. The question is, how do we learn in that place? Will we choose to receive from God and grow? Now, many, of course, simply won't. We won't grow. We won't learn. won't walk in the light of God's word and truth. I read that before becoming uh, a screen actor, young Burt Lancaster, some of you will remember him from a few generations back, he was a circus performer, a job he was uh, fortunate to land considering his less than flawless audition. He was asked to perform on the parallel bars, so he leapt on the bars and began his routine. Because he was nervous, his timing was off, and he spun over the bar, falling flat on his face some 10 feet below. He was so humiliated that he immediately leapt back up on the bar, and as he spun again at the same point, he flipped off and smashed to the ground once more. Bert's tights were torn, he was cut and bleeding, and he was fiercely upset. He leapt back again, but the third time was even worse. This time he fell flat on his back. The agent came over, picked him up, and said, Son, if you don't do that again, you've got the job. Learning from failure choosing to learn from it. Now, the young would-be actor was desperate for a job, but sometimes we're like that. Stubborn, 
refusing to give in, and so we keep failing. And sometimes God allows it so that we'll learn. Learn to depend on him. And we're going to see that in this morning's chapter. We'll start with verses uh, 1 through 3. The right question, but the wrong answer. Israel will find that her armies in these verses, they're asking the right question, but they come up with the wrong answer. Maybe you can relate to that. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it's really a continuation of the end of chapter 3. So we'll start with verse 21 of chapter 3. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is north of Jerusalem by about 20 miles. Keep in mind, at this point in Israel's history, Jerusalem is not their capital. It was, it was ruled and inhabited by the, the Jebusites at this time. But just for a sense of context, it's to the north and over a little bit near where the Jordan River is. Um, and this is where the Tabernacle of Worship was located, in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. That's what chapter 3 was all about. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So what we find is, is that God is speaking to Samuel, but he's also speaking through Samuel. And the word that, that God gives to Samuel is spreading to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. So the tabernacle is up in Shiloh, and over several hundred miles to the west is this area, these, these two cities that are pretty close together, are these two encampments, really, Aphek and Ebenezer. And the armies of the Philistines and the armies of the children of Israel, they're drawing up in, in battle lines against each other. Kind of central Israel, if you're trying to figure out where we are geographically. Now verse 2, then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of of our enemies. There's a lot going on in these verses, a lot that's happening in, in chapter 4. Samuel's prominence as a, as a prophet is rising in Israel. People know who he is, and they're, they're receiving from him. Some are, anyway. Um, he, he's speaking, and the people are listening, but not all of them. They're not all caring to put into action what they know because immediately after that, we read of Israel's armies trudging into battle against the Philistines, but what's missing is any sense or indication that they chose to seek the Lord before this battle. There, there's no, there's no um, inclusion of any idea that they prayed or even asked the prophet Samuel whether or not this was a good idea. They just seemed that they would go ahead and fight. And we're warned about this in the New Testament by James. In chapter 4, verse 13, as he comes to the end of his letter, he, he warns the reader and he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. You who are all about making plans, looking to the future, and, and sort of uh, coming up with all of these ideas really on your own. He says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, 
For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. James is, is speaking the word of the Lord to us, saying, hey, be careful. Nobody's promised tomorrow. Our, our lives, they're, they're like a vapor. We need to have a, a, uh, a spirit about us that's, that's really asking the Lord, God, what would you have me to do? Because only you know what tomorrow holds. Israel's armies were, were pressing forward, moving ahead as though they could do no wrong. And, and God was bound to be on their side. We can spare ourselves a lot of pain when we stop and pray, can't we? <laughs> and then listen to what God has to say and follow his leading. But we're not always inclined to do that, and Israel wasn't either. The Israelites figured out pretty quickly that they'd gotten ahead of the Lord. In verse 2, we read, when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, the Philistines were, they, they were superior to Israel's other enemies in the region militarily because they actually had access to Greek weaponry. They'd, they'd immigrated from, from Crete sometime before, but they actually were able to fight with and they had weapons that were made out of iron, and that was something unique to that area. But it wasn't, that wasn't the only reason that Israel lost, was it? Because we know that when, when we're fearing and serving God, if, if he's for us, none can be against us. There was something else that was going on here. Their, their reliance, Israel's, was on their own understanding. It speaks to their arrogant presumption, their tone deafness to their own spiritual realities that they were out charging ahead of the Lord and then asking him to just sign off on their plans. 4,000 were killed in this battle, and that stung. Israel, Israel, they're backing up and they're rethinking their strategy at this point, which is good. And, and as we read, the nation gets very close to understanding the problem, because remember, our first point this morning is, is the right question but the wrong answer. They know something's wrong. And, and they're, they're kind of looking around going, what did we do wrong? What, what should we do to fix this? Again, the problem is they come up with the wrong solution. Verse 3, when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Right question, wrong answer. They knew the problem was that God had allowed and perhaps even authored defeat. But rather than seek him, they called for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, certainly the, the Ark of the Covenant, we all know what that is, right? Old Testament scholars in the room this morning. That was that, that golden box that had the lid on it that was called the mercy seat. It was located in the innermost chamber of the tabernacle and later the temple, and it was that place where once a year the high priest would, would place the blood of the sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and, and there God's manifest presence, his glory, would be revealed. It was, it was the most intimate aspect of Jewish worship, certainly the Ark of the Covenant. You can read more about it in Exodus chapter 25, but the Ark of the Covenant was not God himself. 
rather than go to the presence of the Lord, rather than seek God, they thought to instead rely on something from his presence. They believed that that would be enough. We've been defeated in battle. Something's not right. Let's go and grab sort of a, a religious artifact and bring it to the battle lines. They were close, but they were miles away from what their real need was. We've known people who are far from God or maybe don't know him, but they think maybe lighting a candle will, will bring God near. They imagine that relying on a cross or a crucifix will provide them with an experience of God's presence and power. I think it's why churches that have candles and incense, lots of experiences that appeal to our senses, that's attractive to our flesh. It fills those gaps that are hard to rely on in faith. Israel and her armies, they're not seeking or relying on God. And rather than humble themselves, they call for an object. Listen to their words in speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, verse 3, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. This isn't speculation. They weren't trusting in the Lord. They were trusting in the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't to be treated as an idol or a god, but that's exactly what Israel was doing. Thanks, God, we don't need you. This box will do just fine. It was an offense. And we do the same thing today. As I was preparing this message this week, I was remembering a story from Calvary Chapel of Redlands, the packing house where Gentry and Neil are from. And I think it was Pastor Ed who actually told me this story. This was, at the time, the church was planted by Don McClure, one of the you know, early architects of the Calvary Chapel movement. And Pastor Don was, I think they were repainting the old sanctuary that was in the old packing house. It's called a packing house because they bought an old packing house and renovated it. When they, when they bought it, the basement where the children's ministry ended up being uh, built out was filled with uh, rotting yams so they had to go in like with a skip loader and clear out all these yams anyway so they're they're repainting the sanctuary though long after the yams were gone and um and so they had to take down this was a calvary chapel so of course there was a dove on the wall fit just behind the uh, pulpit and so they had to take down the dove and they're repainting the walls and i think they might have even recarpeted to this this, <laughs> this church had uh it was like lime green shag carpet. It was from Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. When Calvary Costa Mesa got rid of their shag carpet, it went out to Redlands. And they, that, was, that was how tight money was. We had used carpet. Anyway, um, it, was, it was disgusting. But, um, but the, the dove came down, and, uh, and, and in the interim, while the walls were being painted, people started getting upset because the dove didn't go up fast enough. And, and, you know, Pastor Don, we're at Calvary Chapel. We've got to get that dove up on the wall. And people were making a big deal about it. And, and it so bothered him, this reliance and this focus on the dove. He said the dove is never going back up on the wall. And then later on it fell and its beak broke off. So it couldn't go back up anyway. I think it's up in storage somewhere above the stairs going down to the basement. But we can rely on... on uh, 
places, objects on tradition, which aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but the, the, the ark, it was instituted by God, right? It was, a, it was a good thing. But he wants us to seek and rely on him. Israel's going to learn this eventually. Now, we'll continue our, our study of chapter 4 with verses 4 through 9. Our next point this morning, when God becomes an idol. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Well, the armies of Israel facing failure call for the ark, which is brought up by Hophni and Phinehas, who just, just their known identities and, and characters should have been enough for them to, to think, I don't think this is a great idea. We already know that Hophni and Phinehas had a reputation of being ungodly men to the extreme. How's God going to bless them carrying the ark into the midst of Israel's armies? Apart from the fact that they haven't even sought the Lord anyway. The priests should have known that this was a bad idea, that consulting God himself was preferred to presumptuously grabbing the ark and taking it into battle. Now, this had happened before in Israel's past. You'll remember when Israel crossed the Jordan, came into the promised land, and fought the battle of Jericho. The priests carried the ark ahead of the armies for seven days, right? And it's, I believe there were some other times as well, but it wasn't a hard and fast rule. It wasn't as though God had said, whenever you fight battles and if things aren't going well, just go grab the ark and everything will work out. That's not what we find in scripture. That was not God's explicit instruction. They're skipping steps. They, they've run up against a, uh, a, 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 a blockade, a closed door, so they're saying, okay, what worked last time? You ever done that before? Like, you, 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 things are not, are not moving for you. Things aren't working out. And so instead of praying, instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of seeking him, well, what did I do last time? Well, what worked for this other person? Well, well what, where can I find some system or formula that, that might get me out of this, this jam? Deuteronomy 20 actually gives explicit instructions to Israel as to what to do when facing an enemy greater and stronger than they were. When you go out to battle, verse 1, against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. See, see God had said when this happens, let the priests come and, and sort of give the word of the Lord to the people. There was to be an encouragement to look toward the Lord, to seek him, to wait on him. 
And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. There would be this reminder to the people that God was the one that they were to rely on, that God was the one who was to fight their battle. Remember what the prophet had told Eli in chapter 2, along with that very strong word that he gave him about the judgment that was coming against his household and his two sons? Chapter 2, verse 30, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God said, if you'll honor me, if you'll put me first, I'll bless you, and I'll take care of you. But in today's chapter, we find that rather than wait on God and truly set their hearts to seeking him, they relied on religious objects that reminded them of him. The ark was near God and, and that would be good enough, was their mentality. Instead of actually praying and waiting, they, they do what's been done and what's worked in the past for Israel. It's a shortcut and it's reducing God to a formula. And we do that sometimes too, don't we? Waiting and walking by faith can be hard work, tedious, and it can take a long time, sometimes longer than we're willing to wait. It's easy to look at how God has worked in the past and establish doctrine rather than patiently be led by him today. Jesus worked differently all the time. Think, think about it. When you, when you look at the four Gospels, Sometimes he healed because a person asked, and scripture actually records and speaks of their faith. At other times, Jesus healed because someone else asked, and it was as a result of their faith. Sometimes he touched a person. Sometimes he just spoke a word. The woman was healed by reaching out and touching the hem of his garment, and yet at another time, he spit on the ground and made mud and rubbed it in the guy's face. I mean, I almost feel like Jesus was, was trying to be different to help throw us off the trail of trying to reduce his work and ministry to, to something that could be, that could be understood in a, in a formulaic way. God doesn't want that. What he wants is for us to trust in him. He won't be reduced to a formula. We can't put him in a box. Now, regardless of whether or not the people were supposed to do this, they're excited and the Philistines were afraid. Verse 5, And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook, sort of like when you're in a stadium or something and everybody's you know, shouting loudly. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this, the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. All of this commotion was misunderstood for being the power and presence of God. Israel thought so, and her enemies did too. But volume and energy are not the same thing as the presence and power of God. His blessing and power follow obedience to his word. And that's not a place where Israel is right now. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this, Now, beloved, when you are worshiping God, shout if you are filled with holy gladness. If the shout comes from your heart, I would not ask you to restrain it. God forbid that we should judge any man's worship. 
But do not be so foolish as to suppose that because there is loud noise, there must also be faith. Faith is a still water. It flows deep. True faith in God may express itself with leaping and with shouting. And it is a happy thing when it does. But it can also sit still before the Lord. And that perhaps is a happier thing. Now, Israel is nonetheless re-energized. It may be that God is not with them, but they're excited because the ark is here, they can see it, and they're ready to fight. And the Philistines think, man, we're in trouble because the gods of the Jews have come down and they're among them. And so now they're energized to fight. So whose energy is going to win out here? The funny thing is, is that the Philistines said what the Israelites believed. God has come into the camp. That's what the children of Israel thought. The ark is here. God must be here. The Philistines thought the same thing. The children of Israel were thinking and behaving like pagans. And the Philistines saw it and agreed. Yes, your God is here. The box has been brought into your midst. For Israel, the ark of the covenant, it, it had been reduced to an idol. And they would be very much alone in this battle. The Philistines, they knew some of Israel's history. They'd, they'd heard of the exodus and all that took place in Egypt. If those gods, multiple gods, according to their understanding, were present and fighting for Israel, they were in grave danger, but they weren't giving up just yet. So they rally. Verse 9, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistine commanders, they rally their armies and say, don't give up, don't give in. We can defeat the children of Israel. Let's, let's strengthen ourselves. The tragedy here at this point is that there's little difference between the theology of the Philistines and that of the Israelites. Both see God as an idol. And whenever you worship an idol, you'll be disappointed. God will not be reduced to an idol. He won't condescend in that way. He won't allow faith in him alone to be replaced by faith in an object. Now, lastly, as we finish up this chapter, we'll look at verses 10 through 22. Our final point this morning, learning from failure. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This isn't good. Israel has lost tens of thousands of soldiers. They're turned back by their enemies, and in fulfillment of prophecy, Eli's two sons have died in the battle. And worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. Verse 12, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And we can imagine why Eli's heart was trembling for the ark of God. He knew it was his two sons who were under God's judgment, who, who were living and walking in sin. 
It was them who had carried the ark into the battle, and Eli knew God couldn't bless that. And no doubt he was worried for the ark itself. And when the man came into the city and told it, the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. So you can imagine, you're 98 years old, you're, you're, uh, you're aged, and, and Eli's blind, so his, his ability to engage with what's going on around him is, is limited. He can't see. He can just sort of hear there's a hubbub and people are upset. And, he, and he's sitting at his little place where he normally was. He's, he's lost. He's blind. Something's wrong, though. Verse 16. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled from the battle line. And he said... What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. And he had judged Israel 40 years. Wow. What a tragic end to Eli's work as judge and ministry as high priest. Um, it wasn't, it doesn't seem that the news of his sons dying was what overwhelmed him. It was that the ark was, was taken. And some have speculated that maybe he had a heart attack at this point or a stroke. Maybe he just was so overwhelmed by the news that he, he just lost his balance, fell backward the way he was sitting. It was awkward. And all of his weight came down on his neck and he, he died instantly. But Eli was shaken by this. He knew that the ark was not God himself, but what it symbolized was more than he could handle. This was the very place where God met his people. The ark, like I mentioned before, it was central to their worship. It was deeply painful. It felt as though they were completely abandoned by God, and for all intents and purposes, they were. That was what God was doing. When we're away from God, when we forsake him, when we walk in disobedience, we should know that we are under his discipline and we should not expect his blessing in our lives. He, he's not going to bless our sin. We're in a very dangerous place when we're there. And that's where Israel was. They're, they're in that place, vulnerable, exposed, at risk of being completely overrun by their enemies. There are times in our lives when God allows defeat expressly for the purpose of reminding us of our great need for him. God did this again and again in Israel's history where he would allow them to fall on their faces so they would remember to seek him, to depend on him, to walk in his light, to walk in dependence on him. And God is still doing that today in our lives. 
Sometimes we explain away our failure. We, we come up with all kinds of reasons why things haven't worked out. We, we, can, we can blame and, and come up with excuses when the reality is God is saying, would you, would you seek me? Would you trust me? Would you look to me again? He's allowing us to get trapped, you might say, in, in the results, the consequences of our own choices. God wants us to live in a place of humility and dependence. It's, it's the healthiest place for us to be. But a good question for us to ask is, do we get the message that God's trying to tell us when he's speaking to us in that way? Because sometimes we can completely miss it. We can, we can be so clueless as to our personal weakness and sin. It's one of the reasons it's so critical that we walk in humility. A humble posture and heart that's ready and willing to learn. It positions us to expect to have areas where we need to grow pointed out to us. Hear what I just said. This, this kind of a heart that we're talking about, it's one that's expecting to be corrected. Do we expect to be corrected? I'm not sure that I expect that, or at the very least, I don't want it. Most of us don't get excited about correction, let alone look for it. Like, you know, oh, you know, I've come into the, the you know, to worship the Lord today. Maybe God's going to say something to me through somebody of how I need to grow and, and change. Are we open to that? I hope we are through his word, and we should be through his people as well. That can be hard, can't it? But honestly, how else are we supposed to learn? I mean, are we going to get it all through personal revelation? God uses the body of Christ one another. God wants us to be in a place where we, we want to know so that we can change and be more like the men and women he wants us to be. Hebrews chapter 12 makes clear God's heart towards you and I in, in loving discipline. And, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, thank God we don't live in the Old Testament times of the children of Israel. It, it is, it, we're not facing 4,000 wiped out in one battle and 30,000 in another. But God has his ways of bringing about defeat and humiliation in our lives, doesn't he? If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them." but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This final point this morning is learning from failure, and we don't necessarily see that playing out in the lives of the children of Israel in this chapter, but the challenge is that we would see it in our own lives that we would recognize, oh yeah, 
sometimes when we encounter failure, it's coming from the hand of God in small ways and in big ways. And, and God will use that as a reminder that we're getting ahead of him, that we're not depending on him, that we're relying maybe on religion instead of faith and true trust in and seeking of him. God wants us to maintain that humility and that teachability in our hearts that we would learn from failure. But for Israel, things are going from bad to worse. In addition to the Israelite armies being defeated and the Ark of the Covenant being stolen, the word that Eli has now heard twice regarding judgment against his house is finally being fulfilled. Along with his sons, he too dies rather unceremoniously. How would you like that as your... <laughs> You know, when somebody passes away, we write a eulogy, right? I always I prepare those whenever I do memorial services for people. And we, we write them up and we put them in the newspaper. How would you like that to be your, your cause of death? <laughs> Heard bad news, fell over, crushed neck due to extreme old age, blindness, and, uh, and being overweight. That's not how I want to go if I can avoid it. Israel was in total disarray. They were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. They were, there was a very great slaughter. It's a bad day for Israel, a dark time. But sadly, as we close out the chapter, it, it actually gets even a little bit worse. Verse, uh, worse. Verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. So grievous was all of this news that it, it just forced her into labor at that moment. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, the midwife, do not fear for you have borne a son, thinking that would encourage her. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. Then she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So apparently, Phineas's wife was expecting. We didn't know that until this moment. And she hears the news that her son and, uh, excuse me, her husband and her brother-in-law have passed and her father-in-law and that the Ark of God has been captured. And it seems like it's not the news that her, her husband has died, but that the Ark of God was captured is what really drove her over the top forced her into a labor and, and caused her to name her kid Ichabod, which means the glory has departed because she refers to it again that the ark of God has been captured. That's her focus. And when you think about who her husband was, you kind of imagine, is she really going to miss him? You know, was she really upset that he's gone? I'm not sure that she would be, honestly. You might think, you know, oh man, I'm free of him, but the ark of God. There was a grieving there, an understanding of what that represented, that, that Israel's... Uh, glory, that, that, that God's presence, in a sense, was being removed, his active blessing. The glory has departed from Israel. I've heard it said that, that night is darkest just before the dawn, and that's how God works, because 1 Samuel chapter 4, in some ways, like it reads like a chapter out of the book of Judges. If you've ever read or studied the book of Judges, you know that's what some Bible scholars, Bible scholars have called the, the absolute darkest book in the Bible. 
where it's, it's just so depressing. Israel gets to such this low place. And it's appropriate in a lot of ways that, that this is the end of Eli as, as judge, though Samuel will certainly have a role in part as judge until Saul is anointed as king. But, but it's as though that, that, that darkness is being closed out here before God begins to work in new ways. He isn't done with Israel. God isn't. He'll not abandon them to this fate of defeat and discouragement. But he's waiting for them to look to him and seek him. And he does that in our lives as well. He's, he's working that way in the world today. And I think it's a good reminder when we find ourselves up against the wall, when we find ourselves despairing, when we feel like, where is God? He's abandoned me. He's not answering my prayer. No, he actually promises that he will do that. And what we need to do is concern ourselves with aligning our hearts with his. Today's message was titled, When God's People Won't. Are our lives about all the things that we won't do in response to the Spirit of God? Too often that's the case. Us putting our heels in the ground and saying, well, I won't do that. I won't apologize to him. I won't humble myself before her. I won't uh, go along with that program, whatever it is. Has God allowed some defeat in your life? Are you trying to ward off the consequences of your, your sin through religion instead of humbling yourself, recognizing that God is working to humble you? Have you in some way misjudged or misunderstood God? Are you holding on to that or, or have you repented? The Lord wants us to bring us to that place where we become a people, not who won't, but who will, who, who respond to the pressure that he brings in our lives. A Lewis Copeland writes of a, a certain children's hospital at which a, a boy gained a reputation for wreaking havoc with the nurses and staff. Naughty little guy. One day a visitor who knew about his terrorizing nature made him a deal. If you are good for a week, she said, I'll give you a dime when I come again. This was a long time ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> a dime. The kid's like, whatever. We'll say it's 100 years ago. Dime is a big deal. So a week later, she stood before his bed. This, you know, benefactor came back to see, did my, did my bribe work to get this little kid to behave himself? And I'll tell you what, she said. I won't even ask the nurses if you behaved. You must tell me yourself. Do you deserve the dime? After a moment pause, a small voice from among the sheets said, Give me a penny. <laughs> God doesn't negotiate that way. We want him to. <laughs> we want to say, Lord, I won't, but would you bless me anyway? Or, or I'll, a little, and maybe you can give me a little. God wants all of our hearts. He wants us to seek him, and he doesn't want us chasing after trinkets and religious artifacts and, and experiences to substitute for real dependence and reliance on him, real, real worship and humility, real reliance on his power, that, that he might be honored in our lives, that we might serve him holy, no compromise, no idols, no substitutes, not simply religion, but true 
worship, a life lived for him. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude our time in your word, Lord, thinking about 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's difficult things about this chapter. It's painful in a lot of ways, God, but we can relate in our own hearts. God, we do the same thing that Israel did. We get out ahead of you. We think we've got it figured out. We don't have the patience to wait on you. So maybe we offer some Hail Mary with some acknowledgement of you, but it's not true dependence. It's not real surrender. And then maybe we're, we're shocked when your blessing is withdrawn. God, help us to be a people who learn. Help us to be a people who want to change, want to be who you're calling us to be. I thank you, God, that your word promises that you are at work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. And I pray that you'd help us this morning to surrender wherever we find ourselves in the story. Lord, if there's a little, a little Eli and Hophnius in us, God, that we would repent, that we'd walk in the light before you. Lord, if, if we're guilty like Israel of tolerating sin and becoming apathetic and lazy in our faith, Lord, that you would energize us afresh to be a people that walk near to you and to your heart. God, that we would want nothing less than your full blessing on our lives. Lord, that we would learn from failure. God, that you'd meet us in that place. And before we move into this last song of worship and take the opportunity to respond to the Lord, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in that way. You need to humble yourself. You need to get right with God. If that's you, would you raise your hand? I just want to pray with you before we, before we conclude this. Yes, yes. Yeah. Anybody else this morning? It's a good moment to ask the Lord to be cleansed. Yes. Yeah. Father, for those of us that would, would say yes to you, I pray that you would meet us in this place. I thank you that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I thank you that you are gracious and patient. Lord, and I pray that this morning, as we've taken in your word, Lord, that, that faith would come by hearing, Lord. That, that faith would grow in us as we listen and trust your promises. God, I pray that you'd help us not to uh, settle for substitutes, not to settle for lesser gods, Lord, but to only be satisfied with you, the living God, and your presence and power in our lives. I pray that you would equip us to be a people who walk not by sight, but by faith. Lord, that you would help us to govern our lives and, and, Lord, to make our decisions based on the promises of your word, knowing that you are faithful. God, you can't deny yourself. We want to trust you. Help us to do that, God. Fill us afresh. 
especially these that have responded this morning by raising their hands. Lord, maybe even somebody online this morning who's responding in that way. God, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that for each of us, God, that you would equip us, Lord, to be a people who say yes to you, a people who will walk in obedience to your word and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.